Welcome to the New Age Sage podcast. Today's guest is Britt Frank. She is a neuropsychotherapist. Out of all the therapists I've met, she is the most complete in terms of her understanding of shadow work, trauma work, somatic work, and how to think correctly. You will learn so much from this, as did I. Please leave a review. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy. Britt, welcome. Thanks so much for having me of on. Of course. So I wanted to start with, in your book, the thing that fascinated me the most was your take on depression, because there's so many different ways of viewing it. And one of the things that frustrates me the most is the common notion of a chemical imbalance. That's what I was told. <laughs> That's what I was told when I was 19, that a chemical imbalance was bipolar, and that fucked up my life for a while. So can you please explain depression for us in the in the proper way and why the chemical imbalance theory has some issues. Yeah. And it's, it's shocks me that that's still such a controversial thing. Like people freak out on me when I say that. And first of all, my disclaimer is I have it. So it's not like I'm like, Oh, depression isn't real. And uh, our pain isn't real. I'm saying that all of the researchers throughout decades of research have disputed the chemical imbalance theory. It's just not, it's a theory that was never proved. And it makes sense. It's like, ask a psychiatrist, what's the exact balance of chemicals that I should have in my brain? It's not like you're EQing where it's like, let me dose up the serotonin and dose up the dopamine. Our brains are so infinitely more complex than just here's your level. And, you know, and I, I say this as someone who takes meds and mm-hmm. people are like, well, why do you take meds? Because after a lot of trial and error, I found one that actually helps dial down my edges, mm-hmm. not because I'm chemically imbalanced. I don't know why it works on me. It just does. Mm-hmm. But chemical imbalance is just not the thing under depression. Depression's real. It's life-threatening, debilitating, problematic, and it's not a chemical imbalance. Don't cancel me. <laughs> why not? Why isn't it chemical imbalance? What, what actually is it? What's going on? I mean, there's so many reasons, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, look at the environment. I mean, depression, we label all of it as an internal problem, right? If you're depressed, it's because you have a disease. Mm-hmm. But what if you're in an abusive relationship? What if you're a child growing up in absolute chaos with shootings outside your house? Is that depression or is that a reasonable response to the insanity that's happening outside you? So before we attribute a problem to I'm broken, it's just me. It's like, yeah, but what's the context? What's happening? in the environment because I have never in more than a decade of clinical work and my own personal craziness there's no such thing as crazy but you know craziness I've never seen someone's depression that did not make sense when you got up close and you're like okay oh I get how we got from here to here and it's not because your brain is just skewed there are reasons that we experience it and depression is often our brain doing what brains are supposed to do which is survive why do you think so many doctors are still in full belief of it you know (laughs) Like, again, I had, I still respect them, but not, times not, but one of the lead psychiatrists at Columbia University diagnosed me with bipolar disorder. When I asked him, you know, what, what is that? He's like, you have a chemical imbalance. What does that mean? He's like, I, I don't know, really. I was like, what medication would you prescribe? Lithium. Okay, what does lithium do? I don't really know. This is one of the top psychiatrists. So it's like, why is that so common? Did he assess you for trauma? Did he ask any questions about traumatic upbringing? Did he rule out PTSD? Did he get into no, your trauma it was, history? it was basically like, in my education, I know that's the way to do it. But he was just, yeah. at this point, I didn't know anything about any, any of this. He was just basically like, how much are you sleeping? You know, what's your energy like? Do it like a two-day week cycle for me explaining your energy patterns. That was it. 
Isn't that, I mean, it's really tragic. It's tragic because I think a lot of physicians don't mean to cause harm. I mean, some don't care. There's some bad eggs, but I just think that the medical model has been the law of the land for so long that it's just not taught. I mean, trauma is the big trendy buzzword that everyone's talking about now, but no one was talking about trauma 10 years ago. And so I think that the academic world, the medical model that's just what people know. It's, and if you don't know better, you can't do any better. But it's tragic and it shouldn't be happening. Not now. Certainly not now. What are some other issues with the, the DSM in the sense of, you know, the common issue I see is that, like you said, it's just, oh, you're having anxiety or you're feeling down. Here's just labeled depression, just labeled anxiety without asking you what's going on with trauma. What's, what are you eating? What's your lifestyle like? What are some, some of the other issues, issues with that? I had a professor in grad school called the DSM, the doorstop manual. He's like, the only thing that book is good for is like being used as a coaster or a doorstop. I understand that we need the DSM for people to get access to their insurance coverage. That's fine. But the problem with the DSM is it clusters just, if you check your symptoms off this list, then you now have this disease and it doesn't take trauma. It doesn't take environment. It doesn't take systemic oppression. It takes none of those factors into account, which I get. It's complicated. And I think that the traditional medical model doesn't like complex. It likes you fit here. Therefore, here's your disease. Here's your med and scene. But if that worked, we wouldn't have the crisis that we have. What should go into a proper treatment of anxiety symptoms or depression symptoms? Like if you were in front of someone, what's the strategy you take that's not the one that's normally taken? Sure. Well, the first thing I seek to do is understand, like, why are those symptoms there? I always start with the assumption and, you know, the medical model and most therapy schools don't teach that your brain is on your side. Like the organ between our ears is not designed to get us. And we're all taught fear your brain, intrusive thoughts and fight your, and I get it's scary up there if you don't know what's going on. But if you don't understand that anxiety is needed to keep you alive, how are we supposed to know if a relationship is bad or if, you know, something is dangerous? We need anxiety. Anxiety is like the check engine light on our brain's dashboard. Now, I get everyone's dashboard lights are flashing and we're all suffering, but anxiety is not the problem. It's the symptom. And we've gotten conditioned to think that anxiety is the problem, period. It's like, no, no, no. Anxiety is the flashing light that tells you you have a problem somewhere. And so my job is to help you figure out what's your anxiety telling you, not cut the check engine light, because we need check engine lights and smoke detectors and all of that. Yes, you're saying that anxiety, also I'm assuming depression in my experience, is kind of a compass in some way, pointing you towards what's going wrong in your life or where you need help with. In your experience, how's it been true with patients or yourself? How has anxiety or depression actually been like a a compass to go back to home to your heart or something like that. And for the record, I hated hearing this when I learned it. I'm mm -hmm. like, no, I, I have severe mental illness on both sides of my family. It's like, no, this is my disease. I loved having an identity, Same here. right? Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. no, because now I have my people and I have my merch and my t-shirts that I wear and my slogans. And to tell me that depression, I mean, I was first in line on the like, F you train with that. But depression is a compass. And again, we start with the assumption, or we, meaning anyone who's trauma-informed, start with the assumption that that depression is, has a story to tell. 
Like our bodies record all of our experiences, even when our brains don't remember them. And so depression is telling a story. We need to listen to it. We don't need to fight it. We don't need to battle it. We need to listen to it and understand it so it no longer needs to do that job. That's a sucky job. If you think of like your your personality as all of these different parts and subparts that are all on your side, whoever in my psyche got stuck with the depression job and the anxiety job, that's a bad job. So my job is to help them find better jobs to do and relieve them of that burden. Some of the issues with believing or identifying with those labels, to me, again, this is a cancelable take, but I don't really care, (laughs) is that when you identify with depression or anxiety off the bat, you bypass the work in a way where it's like, okay, all I need to do is take this pill, take anxiety pill, which is fine if you're, you know, really traumatized. But most people I know just stay there forever and they never deal with underlying issues, which I'm assuming is to start getting parts work and stuff like that. So do you agree with that? Do you agree with that kind of way of thinking? I'll speak for myself. Okay. For me, and for a lot of people, <laughs> it's so tempting to bypass the work because the work sucks. Like, that's the other thing that no one wants to validate. It's like, do the work, love and light, and that's great. But the work sucks. And if you look at nature, it all makes sense, right? Nothing that we have that's good does not first start as like fertilizer is not pleasant, right? Diamonds are made by extreme pressure. The work is terrible. And I didn't want to do the work. I first identified as a victim. Not that the things that happened to me weren't legitimately victimizing, but I'm like, no, I am a victim. Therefore, I have no responsibility in my own healing. This is my label. This is my identity. Sign me up. I so push back on, no, wait, I have, assuming I had resources and choices, not everyone does, but assuming you have choices and safety relative and options. Yeah. Like that is going to be on me to take steps and make choices. I call it the princess problem. I'm like, no, someone save me. Someone do it for me. I don't want to do this. And it's worth doing, but man, does this work? It's hard. It's brutal. That's again, a point that's not emphasized often. You know, for me, it was now, if you ignore your trauma for, I was young, but even for what, what, 21 years for me, only that, some people started 40. It was brutal. It was, you know, two years probably of feeling like shit and processing it. And of course, you don't want to go there. Right. But as you said, the benefit of going there is, what's the benefit? Well, you get to live your life. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Alan Watts said, and Mark Groves told me this, and I love his work. You know, when you come into conscious choice, you become the God you were taught to praise. And so once you understand what's going on and you take accountability for what you're doing and you understand what's going on, then you are fully back in your choice power. And my life looks a lot different now. It sucks a lot less to be me now than it did. I was shocked at how much more was available in my experience as a human, once I started owning my, you know, people joke that adulting sucks. Like if you seem like I hate adulting and I don't want to adult, it's like, would you rather go back to being a child? Like adulting is awesome. But the problem is we have these childlike parts that we send out to do these adult like tasks. And then we wonder like, ah, paying taxes. Ah, like this is really scary and hard. But no, I would say being an adult is awesome. And it was the last mountain for me to climb. Like I got sober off my drug addiction. I figured out all my other things, but man, did I 
really resist. Like, this is my life and it's my job to own it. Like, I'm the only one in here. I can't delegate my brain to anyone else. Let's go into the parts part. Can you, because I think it's unfamiliar for many people. Can you explain what parts work is? What are parts? Like, how do we have these parts for ourselves that sometimes control our psyche? Yeah. And intuitively, it's in our language. Like, have you ever said to yourself, part of me knows I should go to the gym, Mm -hmm. but there's this other part of me that just wants to lay here and whatever. It's in our language. Like, well, part of me knows don't do drugs. Drugs are bad. And then this other part of me is in a bathroom at five in the morning with a meth pipe. So when we use that language, it's actually reflecting the organization of our psyche. We're made up of parts. Like all complex things are made of multiple parts, right? Like one tree is going to be bark and branches and roots and leaves. You know, a car is going to have an engine and wheels and all the things. So why do we think our personality, which is probably the most complex thing I could think of, is a singular thing? I am broken. I am anxious. I am just whatever. No, no, no. You've got childlike parts and teenage parts and a adult parts. And, you know, they often have competing interests and agendas. They're all on your side and their job is to keep you alive. But, you know, my drug addict parts aren't bad. Their behaviors were bad. But I needed to understand, oh, I have parts of me that self-soothe with chemicals and I need to relearn how to parent. So the task is, how can you parent the parts? How can you make friends with your mind and actually get curious about everyone in there and assume that all behaviors are not good, but all your parts are? How do you identify the parts? Yeah. And this is all um, from the internal family mm-hmm. systems model, Dr. Richard Schwartz. My it was like, that was the game changer thing. If you are stuck, like, how do I know who's who? Well, let's just start with the easy ones. Which part of you is the one that shows up for your family. Like you said, probably if you have kids, you probably have a really passionate about your family parent part. Like if you are passionate about your work, if you hate your work, you know, look for strong emotional reactions and you will almost always find a part associated with it. How do you avoid overwhelm? It gets a lot sometimes when you have, because I've been doing this work for a while. The more you get into it, the more I realize I have like a bajillion parts Uh of me. It can get overwhelming at times. We're like, mm-hmm. oh, this part will talk, this part will talk. And the more you get into it, the more it becomes overwhelming. So yeah. how do you avoid that overwhelm <laughs> and kind of stay grounded as the, as the observer, kind of observing all these different parts of yourself? And this is where I think that all of the different fields need to come together mm-hmm. because it's really hard to not go into overwhelm with your parts work if you don't know that you have a body and a nervous system and know how to drive it. Because a lot of this, you know, what they call somatic techniques can help your body sort of find a happy middle where things are tolerable. But if you don't know that you have a brain and it drives your nervous system, then when you get into your thinking, you're going to feel totally, I mean, I felt, I just went surfing for the second time and parts work to me was like wiping out on a wave. I'm just like, I don't know which way is up. I feel like I'm going to drown. I'm choking seawater up my nose. Um, So we really need to not just focus on all of the parts and the parts of the parts and our consciousness, but we experience our humanity in a body. So mm-hmm. you got to drive it too. Yeah. One of those parts is the shadow. Yeah. So go into that. What, what is the shadow? What, what is each of our shadows? Yeah. And you know, the, some people in the clinical world hear this idea of the shadow and they're like, oh, that's just like woo woo. And it's like, no, actually like by whatever name you want to call it, we all have aspects of ourselves that we don't want to deal with. You know, like Freud said, that's denial. And Jung said, that's your shadow, however you want to call it. 
I don't want to deal with all of the truths about myself. So I shove them into a corner and they tend to manifest as symptoms and compulsions and interesting behavioral patterns. And I tell people, if you want to try shadow work, the best place to start is your browser history. Like, I'm more embarrassed by my browser history than my drug history. Not that there's anything that bad, but it's like, I don't need people to know I'm like Googling Taylor Swift stuff at three in the morning. But your browser history, where you go when you're sort of dissociated and numbed out will give you a lot of information. You In the book, you mentioned uh, shadow snacks as yeah. a way to deal with the shadow, which is, I never heard anything like that, which is interesting. Yeah. So going, what is that? What is, what is a shadow snack? Well, everyone likes snacks. It's so much less scary than the demons inside you need to be. Fa- it's like, okay, let's dial down the intensity. It's like you have parts in you that want to do bad things. So do I. Doesn't mean it's okay for them to do it, but like all of the parts of me that want to do really terrible things. If you treat them like pets, what do pets need? They need walks, they need snacks, and they need lots and lots of discipline. Not mean discipline. Like if you watch The Dog Whisperer, that's sort of how we deal with these shadow parts. And you feed them snacks so they settle. It's like so your dog doesn't pee all over the carpet. So a shadow snack might be if you have a part of you that's super ragey and just wants to like burn everything to the ground. Well, find an outlet, you know, play a video game, do something where you're watching really violent movies. All of that stuff is fine if it's conscious and intentional. It's not fine when it becomes unconscious and then it impacts our brain patterns. But if you're using that stuff consciously, it can be really useful to take the edge off. Like a snack takes the edge off hunger. It doesn't solve it. it. takes the edge off. Shadow snacks sort of take the edge off. What are some examples of them? Maybe some that you use. Yeah. So the other thing with shadow snacks is you can't shame yourself. So like for the parts of me that want to just be depressed and lay on the couch and not do anything, well, sometimes I let them. Sometimes I'm like, all right, today's a shadow snack day. I'm not showering. I'm not cleaning any. I am just not going to human well today. And I'm just going to lay around and do nothing. That will work if I have a container from 9 a.m. till 4 p.m. I'm going to like have a very long shadow snack. But then I need to get up and go and not go, oh, my God, what's wrong with me that I've spent this whole day? It's like that doesn't work. So that would be an example for one. And one thing I've, I've learned in my shadow work is there's actually gifts in the shadow. Yes. That, that's often not talked about. That Some of the worst things that brought me down have become the, some of the best things about me. But once trained well, right? It's like I had maybe like an untrained I'm a neighbor's dog with a Rottweiler. He's super yes. aggressive. Every time I see him, he's like about to kill me. But that Rottweiler trained correctly can become an angel. So go into that. How can we find the shadow gifts? Is that a thing? Yes. Such a thing. And that's not because I say so. That's anyone who studies shadow work or researches the psyche will say that if you plumb the depths of all of the yuck, you're going to find the gold. And so I love the Rottweiler analogy, right? A Rottweiler properly trained is going to be a great protector. So the parts of me that use drugs, the parts of me that manipulated and did really bad things in order to get said drugs, those parts are wonderful allies and advocates. They're terrible if they're just let out into the street to run around. But if they know that I, I, capital I, is in charge of everyone, then they settle. I think of it like having a family. You've you got kids, you've got pets, you've got all, you know, they need to know that they're safe, that they're loved, and that there is a capital I on board. And then they can relax back. Mm, but I yeah. Agree. Yeah. So I think one of the common issues we face nowadays is where do people go for help, right? Because mm, the main person yeah. is 
um, the psychiatrists aren't great. They just prescribe. Mm-hmm. And then ther- the main form of therapy is talk therapy, which yeah. to me has its own issues because you avoid, you know, the body and trauma and stuff. So if you're someone who's starting this work, where can you go? It's you- so unfortunate, right? Because like the internet is sort of not awesome as far as weeding out what's good, what's not good, who's legit, who's just making stuff up and throwing the word I'm trauma informed on their stuff. So let's just start with it's really tough because not everyone has access to yeah. a trauma specialist, which is unfortunate. But there, there are books, there are really wonderful people online, yourself included, that are giving it. really good trauma. And the internet counts when you're spinning around in a cycle of chaos, anything can be useful. And I have found more. I wish I had the internet in the way I do now 20 years ago, but I'm dating myself <laughs> before my time. What kind of professionals are qualified to do like a good level of work without bypassing or handing pills? Is it somatic therapy? What kind of specialist should be lo- you be looking for if you can find them? Yeah. If you can, if you can find one, I really love trauma informed things like EMDR, somatic experiencing, internal family systems. Those are great. But like if you only have access to talk therapy, it would be awesome if your talk therapist could at least acknowledge that they're not trained in trauma and that we should probably not give you a, this is your diagnosis without finding someone who is first. Yeah, talk therapy helped me for a bit when I had no idea about anything. Yeah. It helped me realize, oh, I have trauma. That was yeah. the first step. But then for years on end, I didn't do anything with it. It was just a continual conversation. And I'd actually manifest bad things. I go to therapy sometimes and be like, oh, I'm actually good. But I had to talk about something bad. I go in there and just start manifesting this bad shit. So didn't really help out there. And then I found yeah. I found somatic healing and I dropped the therapist. And my sister, who has had many issues, has never gotten better and has gone to talk therapy all the time. I put her on to somatic therapist. Suddenly she's a new person. So it, it's really true. But why is that? Why is it that when we finally go into the body and not so much focus on our intellect and, and you know, analyzing what what went wrong why is that so beneficial for us isn't it amazing i did talk therapy for you and again there's merit there's use for it i wasn't ready to change so talk therapy just gave me lots of information that eventually when i was ready i did something with but it is astounding to me how quickly somatic work gets to where it needs to go versus talk therapy you know our brains are very clever we can talk around our pain we can talk about our pain we can talk over our pain we can talk from a like that's my pain over there. But once you get into the somatic work, you're working in the pain. You're working in the injury, not talking about it. And that works very quickly. Because again, our bodies are really wise and they've been doing what they do for a long time. But again, we're trained largely to ignore the fact that we have one. Like I was never given driver's ed for the brain. Like how is it that we grow up and have these three pound blobs of salt and fat and mush and no one is taught like, here's how it works. Like I was taught a lot of algebra, but not like, hey, here's your gas pedal and your brake pedal in your brain. It works fast because this is where we live. What is that gas and brake pedal? Yeah. So the gas pedal is what's called the sympathetic nervous system. And that's responsible for like, a I feel motivated to run all the way up to I'm panicking. So like if you give the car a little gas, you're going to go too much gas. And it's like, pew. and then the brake pedal is the parasympathetic system. And that they call that the rest and digest. Like that one helps us slow down and relax, but too much brake. And then we're getting into things like depression. So it's a spectrum, right? It's not just depression, bad, anxiety, bad. It's we want to have the ability to shift between gas and brake. You can't drive a car just on the gas or just on the brake. You need both. Sometimes I underestimate how, I don't mean to judge mentally, but how checked out some people are. I'm saying that is because 
most of us have no idea about which state we're in. Yeah. And then we can ramp, go sympathetic for weeks and not understand and then crash yeah. for a week or be parasympathetic for too long and then be in a rut. So how can people be aware of where they're at? How can they catch themselves being, I've been too sympathetic or I've been too yeah. parasympathetic? How can we start becoming aware of what state we're in at, at a time? Which one are you in now? Probably sympathetic. How can you tell? I'm being such a brat right now. No, no, no. I, I, cause I'm, my, my nervous system's turned on. Yeah. yeah. How can you tell? A uh, little pressure in my chest. I'm uh-huh. thinking a little fast. If I was parasympathetic, I wouldn't be able to answer, uh, ask questions the way, the way I would right now. Exactly. Yeah. And I ask you that, you know, one, because I'm being a brat, but two, just to model, like, get curious what's going on in your body. If you pay attention, it's pretty easy to tell whether you're on the upside or the downside. Right now, I'm sort of fluctuating between both because I had like the the travel and the plane. So my body is like, but I'm also like, this is my favorite thing to talk about. So I've got both at the same time, which if I didn't know what that was, I would feel really uncomfortable right now. But like, I understand like my heart's really fast, but my stomach is sort of weird, but pay attention and just ask, does this feel like the gas pedal? Does this feel like the brake pedal? Or am I, you know, what we call bipolar is often a very extreme fluctuation between the two. Can we switch back and forth? Or is it a matter of just accepting where we're at? Mm. Oh, that's such a good question. I think it's both. I think sometimes it's like lean in. This is what's happening. And again, like dear friend of mine, Vanessa Cornell is a surfer and she's like, there's a surf metaphor for everything. And it's true. Sometimes you can fight the ocean all you want, but when that wave tumbles you, that's not a time for coping skills or logical thought or trying to shift states. That's like, just hang on and lean into it and let let the wave toss you and know eventually it will end. So sometimes we can shift states. Sometimes it's really important to know how. But often it's, nope, this is what's happening. What are my choices? Not tomorrow, not what is future me going to do, but what am I willing to do in the next 30 seconds in service of what's happening to me? Yeah, one, one of the things I've noticed in exactly that is that sympathetic to me sometimes can be just stress or yeah. anxiety. And it's a topic I want to hit that my anxiety was the worst when I resisted the anxiety. Like to me, anxiety isn't the worst but when you become avoidant of the feeling and you become scared of it. It amplifies. Like again, my, my sister, all, all love to her. What I always tell her is, that whenever she gets anxiety, she takes you know a, a pill to take it away. I told her it's like you know do what you got to do. But the worst thing you do with anxiety is be afraid of it and resist the sensation. Once you resist the sensation, it becomes really bad. Like super bad. And I know because I took benzos for a while. If you suppress the anxiety long enough, that energy doesn't disappear. That anxiety is energy designed to help us. So if you suppress it. That energy doesn't disappear. It just starts to build up and build up. And eventually it's going to show up in a bunch of really unpleasant ways. But you're so right. It's like tolerating our body sensations sounds so simple. It's like, that's what healing actually is largely. It's like, can you tolerate what's happening in your physical body and in your emotional body and in your mental body? And if like you can, life tends to work a lot better. doesn't mean I'm in control. It just means I understand what's happening most of the time. Why is that you think? It sounds counterintuitive, right? Most mainstream doctors wouldn't tell you that, hey, to actually deal with your anxiety or grief or anger, you have to be able to sit with it and be with it. Yeah. Why is that? Why is that not popular? Yeah. Well, the cynical part of me is like, well, there's no money in healing. So like if everyone knows that they're their own 
that they're the architect of their own healing to the degree that they have safety and choices, then I don't need to take those meds, which means I don't need to pay you, which means the pharmaceutical rep and the doctor. And again, like no disrespect to people who do that job. Meds are great for some people. I, lo- I love the respect you throw out there. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's not all bad. Yeah, I hear you. But like, I just don't think there's any money in people realizing how accessible wellness can be for some. And that's the cynical part of me. The optimistic part of me is like, well, they don't know. So that's why they're not teaching it. But I don't really think that's true. Well, just stubbornness and ignorance. I mean, I'm a little harder than you. You're a little nicer than me. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I have people I know or family, friends and stuff who are in that space and they just won't hear you. They won't listen to you. Oh, but I get that. Just like, uh, have you had, it's been your experience too. Some people just shut you, shut you off when you talk about what you do. Oh yeah. I'm like with my family of origin, I'm like, I wrote a book and like, <laughs> I, here's some stuff that people way smarter than I am had to say about it. And it's like, don't want to hear because again, it's so confronting to look in the mirror and to know that not everything that happened to you was your fault, but now what? Like now what? What do we, what do we do with it now? You know, am I going to sit and rage at the world? Yeah. Like everyone owes me something. Someone should take care of it for me. Like, yeah, that'd be great, but that doesn't give me a good life. And I want a good life. Yeah. Let's touch upon family stuff because you raised a point there. It's interesting. You kind of put it as like, oh, I showed them the book and not reading it. It was very much like, I can't control their behavior, but I'm going to yeah. you know, respond to what they're doing. So going to like, I think some of the most intense suffering experience is people who are healing and their family's not. Yeah. And engage in that dynamic. So how can we do that and not lose our minds? <sighs> that one still pisses me off. Because it's like, yeah. guys, like I, I didn't start off as a therapist. I became a therapist later after I learned all this and got a little bit of myself together. And I'm like so excited to, this is early me, to share with my family all this. Like, hey guys, we don't have any boundaries, but if we have <laughs> some, life's going to work a little better. And to be complete, I mean, the healthier I got, the more estranged from my family I got. I was not prepared for that. I prepare my clients for it now. It's like, hey, just so you know, not everyone is going to celebrate your wins. And the people that I wish the most would come on board with me, just they won't. And so number one, grieving that reality. I mean, you can beat your head against the wall, but you're not going to force someone to change or to see if they don't want to. But that doesn't mean you're going to be completely like isolated forever. I have found other people to be family and I have great friends and support. I feel very connected and supported in my life, but it's always a bummer. Like I'm never like, yay, my family of origin has not crossed this bridge with me. But sometimes it's not about leaving people behind. It's about everyone gets an invitation and some people say no. And one of the biggest things I've I've learned, which is maybe your strategy too, is that I think so much for suffering as kids is us wanting our parents to be different, right? And and to treat us in a way that feels makes us feel secure. Yeah. And that thought pattern will go into adulthood if not corrected. Because most people, when I think they have issues now when they're adults, is that they still have that pattern. I wish my dad or mom was this way and they're not. The thing that's helped me the most, which mm-hmm. has made my relationship way better, is that like they're never in my you know maybe pessimistic understanding. I'm like they're not going to change. Yeah. No, I have you're to, right. I have to accept and love them for who they are. You know, and that's been my work. Which sucks. Like, that's really painful work. And again, the medical model, which pushes, you know, don't deal with your symptoms or, you know, deal with your symptoms, not the problem. Grief is even less validated. Like, no one wants to, we're only allowed to grieve if someone dies. And then you get just a small amount of time before people are like, just get over it and move on, which is dumb. But we have to grieve. And none of us 
many of us, we're not taught how. I was, I don't know if you were, but it's like, I don't know how to grieve people that aren't dead. I like, figured out. They're alive. So like, I, I feel like someone died, but they're like, they're over there. Give an example of that. I think you and I can understand that, but many can't. What does that mean? Like, how, how can you actually grieve someone who's not dead? Yeah. Well, one, it starts by recognizing that that's the task. <laughs> like, that's a thing. And What do you mean, like losing, losing a friend, breaking up with a lover? Like, what oh, are yeah. examples of it that you need to grieve? Any loss. Okay. And even, you know, all change, even positive, awesome, happy change is going to involve a loss. And so I had to grieve my addiction and like my longest running relationship up until that point was with chemicals. And it's like, wait, but those are like, like that's been with me from, you know, teenager all the way. I don't want to say goodbye to that. My identity, all the people that I hung around with, like when you get healthy, you lose all your friends if they're not. And that's a bummer. And then grieving looks like writing letters that you don't send and burning. It looks like finding a safe person to say, you know, on Father's Day, oh my gosh, like my father's not healthy. And so I need some place to put this pain, finding a therapist or a friend or a journal or a practice or something where you can put all, you know, all feelings are energy. We have to do something with them or they end up doing something with us. In my experience, I learned the hard way, but losing a parent, I learned how to grieve. And the thing that I came to was that I think, you know, the final stage of grief is acceptance, right? And for me, it's like, there's a, what? I hate that part, but yeah. Yeah, that, then for me, it's like, I don't know if I believe the stages of grief. It's more so to me, how long does it take for you to finally accept what's going on in your body? And that was a difference for me. Like, I could logically accept, <clears throat> you know, I lost a parent, but then it was doing whatever I needed in my body to release emotions where my body could feel that this is my reality. And to saying I, I transferred that to all things, right? If it's losing a friend or, or a lover, it's that same process of what do I have to release my body to make my body know and feel like this is reality. This is the present moment. It sucks. And it, it, it takes a lot of, you know, pent up emotions being released. But to me, that's what, what it took. Oh, it's awful. And that task that you're talking about doesn't work if you don't know how to parent your parts because to lose that person is like to a child losing a parent means death like if we're just talking you know how we evolved as a little person if you don't have a caregiver you die and so if we don't understand that i am now capable of parenting all those younger parts of me i'm going to constantly look to someone to do it for me i can say no to unhealthy family members now because not because i blame them but because i know i can be the father to my parts i can be the mother to my parts and self parenting isn't about being mad at or blaming your parents it's about becoming a parent to yourself again no one taught us how to do that which is a bummer it's doable but the task of saying no to unhealthy people doesn't work if you don't know that you're going to be okay without them how, how do we parent ourselves like how like give an example of let's say you know a part that's coming up yeah what do we do in that moment to parent that part i'll give you an example because this just happened so anyone who thinks that you get to a place <laughs> where you're done it's like this happened last week i took a dance class with my husband and it was you know really awesome people, but it was a dark room. The AC was broken. It was really hot. And they had a circle of people and they passed us around. And I'm like, as I'm getting passed from partner to partner, my nervous system is like getting more and more and more out of whack. And then I ended up dry heaving in the parking lot. And it's like, what was that? If I didn't know, I'd be like, what's wrong with me? This is a dance class. Like I'm here voluntarily. Everyone's really cool. What's my problem? What my problem was that environment sort of reminded my nervous system of a childhood trauma, which was very similar, being passed around in a group of men and whatever. And so I needed to sit there in the car 
like talking to that part, not thinking this is me, but like, oh my gosh, little Brit, I know that was so hard. I know that was so scary. Because we think often in terms of I, me, my, what's wrong with me? I feel like crap. And it's like, no, that was a younger part of me having a flashback in that class. And so talking to her as if I were talking to you, which makes people feel really crazy at first. Like I have people talk to coffee mugs, you know, dolls, objects, rocks, stones, like if it, if a pillow, whatever it takes, but start talking to your parts, not from your parts, not I, it's us, me and all of the parts. It feels weird. You know, like in my car, I will talk to the back seat as if there were children there. There's not, they're my parts. How do you make the part feel safe? Because I think it's a lot of people who re- return to a part, that part's going to feel abandoned. Yeah. You know, angry. So I use young in psychology a lot of the time. Yeah. In that, I'll, you know, find symbols in my dreams or like feel lost or something. I'll write a dialogue. Yeah. They'll be mad at me. They'll be feeling abandoned. And it, nothing gets better until they feel safe. And that part feels yeah. safe with you. So how can we make that part feel safe? How do you make your parts feel safe? Um, it's not, I actually include the shadow snack thing sometimes. I'll be like, what do you need for me to do yeah. for you to feel engaged in this, you know, reality? Yeah. So if it's, you know, a part of me that, that's been... In, a bad. It's part of me. I want to kind of give up sometimes, just do nothing and be a, a bum. <laughs> so it's like, mm-hmm. like you said, so one day I'll be like, all right, I'll take fucking, you know, Sunday off and just sit down and do nothing. It's like seeing what they need from me. And then if it's, it's just like a faster checking in. It's like, I think sometimes when I'm busy and working a lot, I'll hear the whisper and I'll abandon it. I'll be like, later, later, later. I'll deal with you later. Yeah. And then I forget. Yeah. So I become better just like immediately being like quickly the habit of like, I hear you. I'm with you. What do you need? You know, I love you. We're good. And then I'll go back to the memory uh, that caused the issue. I'll kind of go to that moment and try and correct the timeline. I love that so much. And that really is the path. And I was a play therapist early in my career because I wanted to understand, like, how do children make sense of the world? Because we treat them like they're adults. And as adults, we forget that we were once children. And it's like kids actually don't need that much. They need to be physically safe, fed, clean, whatever. But they just need to be paid attention to. Like you said, sometimes you don't have the space or the time to go shadow diving into what's the story and what's the narrative. But it's always like, oh, hey, hey, little B, I see you. I hear you. Right now, mama's at work and we have a thing we have to do, but I'm going to circle back to you as soon as we're done and make sure I listen to you. Mm-hmm. That often is enough. You know, it's not always let's sit down and have a dialogue and now do soul retrieval and all that stuff's great. But sometimes it's enough just to recognize their voice and validate their existence and let them know they're not alone and help's mm-hmm. on the way. Help is on the way is something I tell my parts often. Mm-hmm. That's good. So there's a common phrase that says hurt people, hurt people. But I, I believe hurt people heal people. Yeah. So what was your, you know, your story in the sense of what got you to the point of healing yourself and what made you want to heal others? What was that that journey like for you? Hey there, I'm going to give you a break to digest all of this amazing information. And in this break, if you like what you're listening to, please rate and review the podcast. Thank you. Well, the whole hurt people, hurt people thing. It's like, well, who's not hurt? Show me a human that's not hurt in some way. Like, 
we're not all the same and not everyone has the same level of her, but this hurt people, hurt people idea assumes that like there's this little pool of, of people that have been hurt and they do the bad things. It's like, no, all he, if you're a human with a pulse, you've been hurt, likely you've inflicted hurt. And so that's my thing with that expression. Um, but I agree with you that all people have the capacity to be healing agents for other people. I don't think of myself as a healer. Like I don't heal people. I give them information. I'm mm-hmm. a mirror. If anything, it's like, I'll mirror you back to you so you can see your magnificence. So you can see who you actually were meant to be without all the bullshit covering you. And then I'll train you in how to tend to all of your parts, how to hear them, how to dialogue with them. But I don't think of myself as that I am here to heal you because then if you heal, it's on me. But if you don't heal, that's also on. I don't want to be responsible for your outcome. Like then that takes all the win away from you. If you heal, like if you get sober and I've healed you, you do not get credit for that journey. Now I'm the hero of that journey. Yeah. I don't want to be the hero of your story. Yeah. I, I'm busy with mine, yeah. but I'll walk alongside you with information and mirroring. And you know, people are like, as a therapist, you're paid to care. And it's like, no, as a therapist, I'm paid to give you information. Like I love the people I work with because I do. So I think that's a big task too. It's like, as healers, our job is not to heal, but to hold a mirror up so people can access the own healing capacity that's in them. What made me want to do this, I wish... Just before you start that, I think mm-hmm. a good point there is that a healer helps you find the healer within. Yeah. that's a, I have a guru, I had a guru since I was 19, thankfully, who I'd always ask, how do you how do, do that? I'm not telling you. Like I'm going to show you how to tell yourself. Yeah. And that, that It was frustrating. It made me yeah. who I am. But yeah, continue. Sorry. Oh, it's so annoying. Yeah. Oh my gosh. When I was told, like, no, you have everything you need inside you, I'm like... Really? Like, no, 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 no. And sometimes we do need help with answering actual questions. Like, how does my brain work? I'm not going to figure that out on my own. But who am I? What am I about? What do I want? What do I do with this rage? What do I do with this pain? No one's going to tell me the right path. They're going to just say, here are all the options. Pick one. I hated that. I know someone do it for me. Tell me what to do. So I did not become a person in the healing world out of this like desire to help people like that sounds so bad but it's like i'm same here like the fact that i help people is an awesome bonus but like i came to this work because all i want to do is share what i know because i think this information is really awesome and it's not rocket science it's neuroscience but you it's was appalling to me how little you actually need to know to make changes and i just like talking about it so the fact that people are helped and that's just sort of a byproduct why did you do it for me, I have a, I think I'm borderline, I don't know, autistic or savant, something where I can't like, my brain always goes back to the work. Mm-hmm. I can't not think about yeah. it. Like everything I do is in that lens. I watch a movie, I'm analyzing that way. Mm-hmm. My brain just doesn't stop thinking about things that way. So if, if I were trying to be a normal human being, <laughs> I think I'd, I'd commit suicide. I tried it. Like I got suicidal. For yeah. me, it was like, this is the only way I can exist. Yeah. Um, just because my brain works that way. And then if people get help on the way, yeah, it's fine. But just for me, it's that fascination yeah. with the mind, the body, healing. I just can't stop thinking about it. everything I do is in that lens. So yeah. I have to do something with it. I'm, I'm the same. I do this because I love to do it and it's my favorite thing to do. And I think often when people get into this work to heal people, that's where you get into some of the dangerous positions where people are being taken advantage of, or there's the, like, I'm going to worship this person and I have to do it their way. And, and I was part of a fundamentalist cult for a while. I understand the appeal. It's like, I don't need to do my work. I just worship that person. I do what they say. I dress how I'm told. I read what they read and I'm good. And I don't have to deal with any of my own humanness. So 
you know, a lot of people, myself included, want to sort of outsource that job to someone else. But I don't think anyone that's authentically in the healing space thinks of themselves as the healer. What was the cult? <laughs> it was like a, so I grew up in New York. And I was like a Long Island Jewish girl. It's like, what's the best way to rebel? It wasn't get a tattoo. It wasn't dye my hair green. It was like follow Jesus in like a super fringy fundamentalist way in the middle of the Midwest. So I did for a while. And then that doesn't work long. And it wasn't like a hate cult and it wasn't a sex cult or a murder cult. Like there's a lot, there's a large spectrum that cults fall on. How old were you? 22. Where'd you go from there? <laughs> Drug addiction. Okay. And then so love you addiction. You weren't, you weren't a drug addict at that point. You got out of the cult and then yeah. became a drug addict. Yeah. Why? Um, because I wasn't ready to deal with my shit. Okay. Cult life stopped working once I started thinking. So I was like, well, this isn't going to work. So I followed a boy out of there who then, you know, introduced me to the world of crystal meth, and things escalated very rapidly from there. What was the escalation? Um, have you ever smoked meth? No. It is. And not that there are any good drugs, but crystal meth is some next level just awfulness. Because, I mean, you get really high, but as high up as you go, that's how far down you crash. And I did really things that I would never like, oh, my God, how could I have done that? I don't go to the shame place. I mm -hmm. understand that's part of my shadow. But crystal meth, it's not like the meth made me do it, but crystal meth will alter your brain in a way where things will make sense that really shouldn't make sense that you probably shouldn't do. And I had a friend who was like, it really made sense to me to vacuum all of the walls of my house for hours and hours and hours to make sure that there were no like termites in the walls. Like that made sense. It made sense to me to do really, to be in really violent relationships and to participate in that because I wanted my drugs. Mm -hmm. One, what were you avoiding mostly and why mm. meth? I think the drug of choice is ultimately like the part of our brain that we need mm. in some way. Like I, I loved Adderall because I had, I had dopamine deficiency because of my trauma. So what was, why meth and what were you avoiding that you needed meth for? Yeah. Well, I've always loved speed. Like I would much here. rather yeah. outrun, you know, I've done opiates and like, yeah, being all zonked out is interesting, but I can still think when I'm sort of like passed out on a couch. If I'm on speed, I don't think about anything. I just feel really good until I feel really bad. But even the, the feeling bad kept my mind occupied. So I never really had to deal with me. I was either running faster or crashing from it. But I really did. And again, it's not my fault. I don't blame myself for the things that happen, but I do see where I participated in it. It's like, I didn't want to deal with my reality, with my trauma history, with the reality of my parts and what their needs were and what happened to them. So I found speed or speed found me or I manifested it or however you want to frame it. But I took to that very quickly. I'm like, oh, I like this feeling. Yes, please. Well, what was the up. moment where you realized I can't run? I also need to stop yeah. and process stuff. What was that moment? What caused that? That inception. Yeah. And I don't think healing from anything is like a, a linear, like here's the sunshine, you know, insight. And now I've pivoted and now everything is like, that's very Hollywood. I mm -hmm. know no one whose story sort of played out like that. But if I had to like pick a pivotal moment. Mine was like that. Was it really? Yeah. Okay. You're the first person yeah. I met. Like, that's awesome. Okay. <laughs> like after we're done recording, I want to hear that. But um, 
for me, it was, I always just, part of me justified my drug use by saying, it's not really an addiction if people are around. So as long as someone else is like prepping the drugs and like lighting the pipe, I'm fine. And then there was one night where it was like five in the morning by myself in this like super filthy, grimy bathroom with like syringes everywhere and bugs. And I'm sitting on the toilet and I'm like, well, there's nobody here. So clearly like this is, this is me. And the relationship that that was part of was also getting to the point violence wise where I wasn't going to survive another day in it. And it was like, this is kind of like a, do you live or do you die? Like that, it was that extreme. So that day I chose not to die, which was good. What do you think got you in an abusive relationship? Why do women find themselves so often in situations like that? I don't know women as a whole, but as a clinician and as someone who's done it, I say we we fall into the familiar. Like it's very rare that people who are raised with secure, not never, but rare, where people who are raised secure attachment, they know who they are. They're not scared of abandonment. They have a peaceful relationship with themselves to a degree. Those people tend to get exposed to relationship toxicity and go, yeah, not for me. Like, no, you don't get to treat me like that. To me, it made total sense. It's like, oh, well, yeah, like I grew up in a yelling family. So being yelled at made total sense to me. What was the journey away from that? How do you also, in your experience, how did you go away from that level of being treated that way? And how Mm -hmm. do you recommend people to get there? So if you're in a toxic relationship or something, what does it take for you to finally be like, peace, I'm going to find healthy love? Yeah. And I did. And I'm married to a normie. And it's really fun. Like, he's just like a normal, healthy, happy what does that mean, guy. A like, he'll have a beer and then be done. When he's tired, he goes to sleep. And like, he has friends and activities and inter- like, no giant capital T trauma history. You know, he's ex-military. So there's that stuff. But like, he's just generally a really happy, high functioning guy that it's weird to me. That was when I knew something had changed. I'm like, wow, if I am marrying this person, either he has devolved to me or I have up-leveled to this level. Um, with toxic relationships, and I didn't know this, that is an addiction. And you can't really start to heal from it until you're out of it. Because the stress hormones that happen being in these high chaos relationships your brain actually gets dependent. It's like you have a pharmacy in your brain that produces chemicals that you then become addicted to. So you have to detox off the relationship before you're going to heal. So for me, it was treating this relationship just like I treated crystal meth. It's like, I have to sober up first. And I use dialectical behavior therapy for that, which is just like, it's not a trauma healing modality. It's called DBT. It's just skills-based. It's like, here's how to tolerate my craving. Here's what I do when I feel like doing this. And it gives you a really nice structure to put all of that stuff. Then once I stabilized, then it was trauma healing and then working with the body and then finally working with the parts. What did it take? Like, what can someone who's in that situation now do? Yeah. Well, like any addiction, it helps to recognize that you're in one. Like, I'm fine. I'm fine. This is me. I, but I, but I love them. But you know, like when it's good, it's so good and all of that and no shame, but like you can't heal from something you won't name. So naming a, I am in an addictive cycle with this person and I'm not ready to stop today. It's like, okay. Like if you're not ready to stop today, then we can find other things to work on until you are. But no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything is fine. It's like, well, we can't 
can't do anything until we're willing to get really honest with ourselves about our situation and about our, you know, my recognition that this was a bad relationship and my leaving it had a very large gap because um, I wasn't ready and I wasn't willing. So, but that's a great starting place. I love it when clients come in and they're like, I know this is bad for me, but I have no intention on stopping. I'm like, great. Let's find something you are willing to do because if we can get some mobility over here, then maybe this will feel different. And usually that's what happens. How long did it take you to get attracted to someone who was a normie or, oh or peaceful? Gosh. I had to do so much therapy as a client when I started dating healthy people. I had no tolerance for it. Like I had like a, this feels weird. Like normal people are just like, what I don't know what to like. I don't know what to do with this. It was just so disorienting to my system. So I went to therapy a lot. And my therapist was like, your system has gotten so comfortable with chaos that healthy feels bad. It's sort of like if you lived on a diet of like cigarettes and Mountain Dew, eating vegetables is going to hurt your stomach for, at first. So making a good decision doesn't mean you're going to feel good. And I think people get really stuck thinking, well, I made a good decision. Why aren't I feeling happy? It's like, because first you have to feel like crap and then you get to feel happy. So I worked with a therapist, a somatic therapist who helped me tolerate. This is what sensations come up when you're with a healthy person, like a healthy person who like, if he doesn't want to talk, will very kindly be like, I'm going to do my own thing. And I'm like, but, but you're not going to pay attention to me. And he, he treated me like a, a functional adult, which pissed me off. He's like, well, yeah, like you're grown. You've got your life. You're fine. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's actually true. So Health is is off-putting, so are, so are vegetables, until you get used to them. Are you totally good now in the relationship? Yeah. Like you you no triggers or desires to go back to the chaos? No. Or just smooth sailing now? No. No, it's no, no, no. It's like, it's not that I never get triggered, and it's not that, like, I still don't wish that speed wasn't so bad, because it's still really fun. But, like, it's not a pull. Like, it used to be all day, every day, consumed with, don't do the thing. You need to do this. Stop doing that. That's just not how I live day to day, which is, now the work is different, which is nice. Why is it so common for, because I think most relationships you see, I really mean that. I don't think generalization are pretty fucked up in my experience. Why is that such a common thing, you think? Is it because we're all raised in strange family dynamics? We all have, like, our, our fucked up family. Is that common? Like, why are so many relationships c conflictive and toxic it's beyond the addiction to the chemicals? It's so tragic, isn't it? Yeah. Like, if you look at the world, and again, I don't like to be cynical, but I'm also not going to be like, everything is love. It's like, there's a lot of fuckery out there. Some of it is from lack of information. Some of it's from lack of safety. And a lot of it is from lack of willingness, which really sucks. Cause when people are like, well, you know, they just, they are who they are. I'm like, no, that's not how brains work. They are who they are because they're choosing that. And that, that's a hard pill to swallow. And it's like the discomfort of change needs to be compelling enough to do it. Otherwise you're going to stay in the comfort of the chaos. Chaos is shitty, but it is comfortable. How do we make that change compelling? Like I have my own strategy. I think cause I'm, I'm still. I don't identify with the addict anymore, but I was a yeah. hardcore addict. And what I've, I'm now kind of addicted to sobriety in a way of being kind of disciplined. So it's gone there. But what helped me is whenever I had a trigger or a craving, I'd look at the timeline of like, okay, what happens in my life? If I do this thing right now. What's the other side of me not doing this? Mm -hmm. I, I feel both my body. I'm like, if I, okay, I take, you know, let's say a bump of Adderall now, two hours good. And the rest of my day, I'm feeling crappy. Yeah. I'm addicted to people I love. And then two years in the line, I'm just, have my nervous system shot, my adrenals are shot. That's one thing. Other timeline is me finally being able to find myself and be peaceful. I feel into that. Okay, it's better. 
So is that a useful thing to do? Like, how do we actually stop succumbing to our cravings and carve a new path for ourselves away from the addiction? Yeah, what you just described was DBT. Like, that's what you would do in dialectical behavior therapy. It's a great skill. And so you kind of need a big toolbox because there were some days I was not willing to sit down and journal and map out my like my timelines. I'm just like, no, I want the thing. I want it now. And sometimes you need to white knuckle it. It's not ideal. Sometimes you need to like have someone sit with you until that feeling passes. I've found it most useful to treat those parts of me with the cravings as my parts and talk to them and just be like, I'm not going to be able to soothe you or make you feel safe right now, but I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to let you go out and do the thing because I love you too much, but we're just going to be here together feeling like absolute shit and I will not leave you. So it just comes down to sitting with the trigger, not escaping it, not yeah. needing to, to die it down. And tolerating the body sensations. I mean, if you think about a craving, a craving is just a series of body cues that we now attach a story to that it's like these cues mean I need this thing right now and we forget everything that we know and so if we can tolerate the distress of the physiology like we do this at the gym no one goes to the gym and expects it to feel good doing leg day like we know it's going to feel like crap but we do it in service of the goal of fitness but somehow we think that getting healthy being in good relationships, whatever should like feel good. And like, it doesn't like you build muscles by tearing them. And it's the same thing, building strength, emotional resiliency, happiness, like happiness starts with feeling like crap. Like you don't go from I'm stuck in this life to now I have a good life. You go from like stuck to a tiny little microscopic step. And, you know, if you look online, you see everyone's finish line, but no one is like, putting an I didn't put an Instagram reel out the first day I was off crystal meth where I'm laying on the floor hallucinating because I hadn't slept in days eating a yogurt spoon by spoon with my sponsor on the phone like that's not sexy no one wants to see people's starting gate but if we stop looking at the finish line everyone who finishes started somewhere so we have to focus on what what are you willing to do right now not next week not tomorrow not tonight what are you willing to do right now like the next 30 seconds, that's what matters. Yeah, I appreciate the complete honesty over your past, especially yeah. someone in your position. It's like counterintuitive, right? You want to keep this this mask of I'm this, you know, good good therapist or, or, or doctor. How did you lose that shame? Yeah. I think it's such a big piece that we often forget about is any side of yourself you're still holding the shame is coming back for you with a vengeance. How did you lose that that shame? I think it helped that I didn't start out as a clinician. It wasn't like, you know, this has been my, like, I came to this work through my story. And so it never even occurred to me to hide this part of my story. And then I found as I started building my practice, like people would come to me, they're like, I don't really care about your degree. I like that you say fuck. That makes me feel like you're a human. And so I just got it reinforced over and over that the more I'm me, like I don't vomit on my clients, but like, this is my story. It's doing nice either of us any favors to pretend like it's not there. So I'm not proud of it, but it it is what informs everything I do. And I can sit with almost anything that anyone brings to me because of it. Like yeah. my clients know I'm not going to be like, oh my God, you do what? You had a thought about what? Like you're into what kind of weirdness? It's like, yeah, okay, like let's work it out. Yeah. So there's no, no judgment ever. Well, I'm still human. There, there are certain arenas. I don't operate in them, but like there are certain things I think I'd have a hard time being a therapist for like child stuff. Like mm -hmm. I don't, and again, those people better to heal people that are into that. So they don't injure children. I don't think I'm the right 
person for that particular job, mm -hmm. but I have pretty limitless stores of compassion for almost everything else. Yeah. In you right now, I sense someone who's become very disciplined and understanding of themselves. Mm -hmm. If you're ordered together and have, you know, I'm assuming you have good boundaries of yourself. I'm assuming it was the opposite way for so long. How, how did that happen? How did you go from one extreme of being so undisciplined and yeah. have no boundaries, boundaries with yourself to being where you are now? Like no boundaries, none. And it was as, you know, again, these were not big steps. It wasn't like, I'm going to take a giant step forward in service of my healing. It was, how do I, it started with, how do I not die today? And then it was, I need to make money. And having left this relationship, I didn't have enough money to pay rent and for my car. So I got a job and slept on a blow up mattress in my office when everyone left. And I did that for a little bit. And then it's like, all right, well, how do I now get to where I have enough money to be out of debt and not hide from like the guy trying to repo my car. And then it was, okay, once I got that stabilized, I need to live with people. I probably shouldn't be living on my own, which was humbling because I'm like, I don't want to live with a bunch of 20 somethings, but I did. And then it was, all right, well now how do I get to a place where I can have my own space? And every micro step along the way helped me sort of leapfrog up until I was able to take big steps. Now it's not hard to be disciplined. I mean, I'm not perfect. Like I still like junk food and not doing things and not journaling. But when you start to see the benefits, it's a lot easier to maintain the discipline. Like, so the answer to your question is do the work when you don't see the results of the work. You do that long enough, you start to see it. And I wouldn't trade my life for anything. So yeah. it's like, I delight in doing my practices because I can. Yeah, you're right. It's a weird thing. Cause I've had, you know, traumas that for so long won't go away. I yeah. just, you know, like I keep doing the work, keep doing it, keep doing yeah. it. And one day just, stops being triggering and you just look back like huh yeah how does this happen yeah that's kind of the magic you're talking about that but as you validating your point it just was many many different steps and also in that i think there's something into me you can validate this with your you know medical um information is that if you face a trigger mm -hmm. from a past trauma why is it that you face it when you face a trigger from past traumas off so many times it stops phasing you yeah. Is that a thing? Like the more you face it and sit with it over time, for me, it's taken years. It stops um, being as strong. Yeah. And there's like um, two sides to that coin, right? Like facing your triggers and learning to metabolize them and process through them until they're no longer a thing. Like, yay. But sometimes people will just like force themselves to confront their triggers until they're so frozen and numbed out that it no longer bothers them. But that's not healing. That's bypassing. So... Yes to facing your triggers, but not to the point of bypassing. Like we want to do it like that dance class I told you about where like I totally had a PTSD flashback. I went back to it to it last night and I was like, okay, like and I sat with this. I'm like, is this a trigger that I'm that I think will be helpful for me to face, or would it be more in service of my system to just not go? And there was a time where not going would have been the medicine. Last night, I'm like, this is a cool class. I don't actually want to not be able to go. And I'm resourced enough that I'm going to be able to manage it. And I told my husband, here's what, Normie, here's what I need from you in this situation. Are you willing? And he said, yes. And we had a great time. So in that sense, facing the trigger was the medicine. Sometimes bypassing it temporarily is needed. Like if you're in chaos, like, no, don't force yourself to confront every trigger because you don't have the resources to tolerate it. But the more you can tolerate, the more expansive your world gets, which I want. Is it possible to re-traumatize yourself? Oh, yeah. How so? Oh, yeah. Like, 
you know, and this is where things like exposure therapy get tricky. It's like, well, no, the, I gotta face the thing and that way I conquer it. And it's like, yeah, but if you don't know how somatic healing works, then you don't know how are you, how can you tell if you're actually processing through it or if you're just beating yourself into dissociation? And so have I been re-traumatized or am I healed? If you pay attention, it's a pretty easy answer. It's like there's a quality to something being healing versus re-traumatizing where if you're paying attention, you're, you're going to know the difference. What's that line in you know, relationships? I think that that's more, in my experience, we face some of our deepest traumas and our wounds. How do we dance that line there? You know, if a partner is triggering us, sure. at what point is it good to be like, you know what, this is too much for me? Yeah. How do we dance that line, especially in relationships? And I, I sang that song. I'm like, no, 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 I need to be in these relationships so I can heal it. You know, like all of these toxic people, like this time I'm going to get it right. And it's like, yeah, but like you're never going to change the person in front of you. So you have to start with, is the person in front of you actually safe? Relationships are great laboratories to heal, assuming your partner is generally safe. If they're not, then that is not a safe place or a useful place to try to heal. Um, you know, like when my husband and I get into arguments, you know, like he's a safe guy. He doesn't hit me. He doesn't scream at me. But like angry man is going to trigger a few of my parts. This is a very safe relationship to say to him, you know what? I have parts of me that are getting super active right now. I need to take a step back. And he's like, cool, let's resume in an hour. And then we do. So let's assess for safety first. If it's not safe, no. If it is safe, then that's worth working through. Because how, how do we set up boundaries like that without controlling the person? <laughs> it's, a, it's a very fine line. Like yeah. When I, when I, I was once that toxic dude, regret, regret, regretfully, so no shame, but regretfully, so understanding yeah. my trauma. But I would like tell women, you know, like my boundary is you can't, you know, go out, you can't drink all this toxic shit. And yeah. I would be like, I'd be validating myself with therapy. We like, it's okay to do that. Yes. Um, how do we know when it's control versus an actual boundary? What's the difference? Yeah. Yeah. I love that you shared that. Like, thank you for being so honest about that. Cause <laughs> it's like, how are we supposed to heal if we can't talk about the darkest parts of our behaviors? And it's like, yeah, okay, cool. Like you did that, you learned it. And now we do differently. So a boundary is never about another person. So like your whole, like my boundary is you can't do this, 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 and that. I'm like, that's not a boundary. Cause like a boundary is, I don't tolerate relationships where blah, 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 blah is happening. If I see these things, I'm going to leave. Like, that's your right. Like, that wouldn't work for me. But like, who's to say that your partner isn't like, you know what? That's reasonable. Like, I'm okay. But your boundaries allow you to have your autonomy and freedom to choose and theirs. But a, the purpose of a boundary is to make the relationship safe, not to make the relationship like under your control. So, you know, if you're like, my boundary is you can't cheat on me, that's not a boundary. You're just saying that you don't want the person to cheat on you. My boundary is if I find out you cheated, I'm going to leave. That's not an ultimatum. Like an ultimatum is about control and power. A boundary is about preserving safety and making sure that I'm free to make my choices and you're free to do what you want. In the Like if I make my choices and you don't like them, like then leave. Yeah. Let's do an exercise where you kind of, we can learn your wording. I think the key's in the wording here. Yeah. Let's use the example of, I'm trying to think of something common in a relationship. Okay, let's say you're seeing someone who still talks to their ex. Yeah. Right, that's a common one. And yeah. you don't want to talk to their ex anymore. Yeah. Um, whatever reason that is. Yeah. How would you go about that in a safe manner? 
Sure. And I had to deal with this one. And oh. I didn't do it very skillfully at first. <laughs> I have since learned. Um, this would look like this. Hey, can I talk to you when you have a minute? Is now a good time? Because I think our tendency of ambushing our partners sets the conversation up to crash from the jump. So it's like, hey, I have some things that are on my mind that are bothering me. Are you available? And if you're like, no, I'm busy. It's like, okay, well, let me know when you are. Now we've created some safety. Now you're available. Then it's, hey, just so you know, I noticed that you have this relationship with your ex. I'm having lots of feelings about it. I'm feeling really insecure. I'm not really okay with it. I'm not really sure what to do with this. I just want to let you know that this is a thing that I'm processing. Like, I respect your right to do what you want. I just want you to know this is what this brings up for me. A safe person won't necessarily just stop seeing their ex, but a safe person will be like, all right, let's talk about this. This is, this is the, would it make you feel better? Like my husband is still friends with his exes after like 25 years, which is a sign of like, that's actually a sign of health. And he's like, well, you're well, you know, do you want to meet her? Do you, what would make you feel better? You know, he leaves his phone out all the time. Every other marker in the relationship is one of trustworthiness. So I was able to be like, okay, this actually isn't a problem, but for other people, if you don't feel safe, then it's on you to leave. It's not on them to change, right? So it's, I feel a way, are you willing to meet me in the middle and help me work through it? And then it's up to them. Like you can ask them, I don't want you to talk to your ex. Are you willing? Okay. Like, but if they're not, then it's on me to leave. Right. We don't want to leave. No one wants to be the ones pull the trigger. Like, it's like, no, 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 you, you change. Cause like, if yeah. you change, we're fine. And that's just not true. Yeah. It's tricky too. Cause like, at what point was our trigger to leave too sensitive? You sure. know what I'm saying? Like, I think in my past relationship, I almost left like a, a thousand times. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. didn't. And I should have, but yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. So what's that? But other times I shouldn't have. So it's like, how do we know when it's like, okay, they won't do this behavior I want them to do. Yeah. Is it something I should leave with, leave for? Or is it something that I should grow with and learn to tolerate? Yeah. What's that line? Isn't that a terrible question to have to ask? Because I'm a runner. I'm just like, I'm out. Bye. Yeah. Like the first sign of whatever, <laughs> it's like, I don't want to be in this anymore. And that's still my first thought. Yeah. One, of my, like, one of my boundaries is that like the biggest trigger for me is I'm in an argument with someone uh-huh. and they um, leave and like slam the door from the room. Like that's my mom did as a kid. So it was like very, for me, it's like, I can't, I can't have that. Yeah. yeah, go on. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm with you on that. <laughs> so the conversation there, if your partner did that, would be explaining, hey, this is what it brings up for me. This is how it impacts me when this happens. Are you willing to maybe work on that? If they're safe, the thing you're asking for is not unreasonable. Don't slam doors is like a super reasonable ask. If they're not willing to work on that, that's information. That's hard information, but it's information for you, yeah. right? Like, is this a relationship worth pushing through if your partner won't even do the very basics of like being polite and like you can be angry and polite adults who are functioning skillfully should never be yelling at each other. Yeah. Like in an adult relationship. Yeah. Get mad. Like, I, like get mad, be in a fight, but never yelling is just never part of a skillful conversation. Back to my question. When is it the time to leave? Yeah. I don't know. You just depend on the person. Done? Yeah. And and then when you're when you know you're done. And what if I leave too soon? Okay, well then if you leave too soon, likely you're going to keep teeing this up and hopefully eventually you're going to start looking at like maybe I'm the problem here. But you know, I tell people take an inventory before you decide they slam the door now I'm leaving. It's like, well, okay, over the last 6 months what are your markers that they've been pretty safe and consistent and reliable? 
versus, and no one, myself included, wants to do relationship inventories because it's not romantic and it's not passionate. It's like, but we need to be able to assess. So look at it. And it's like, well, we've only been together three weeks. I'm like, well, if you're already slamming doors after three weeks. There, maybe go to your corners and do some other stuff first. But when is the right time to leave is such a personal, yeah. like my tolerance for whatever is not the same as another person's. Mm -hmm. So I don't tell people that they should leave. Yeah. What are some other of the biggest relationship issues you see in the, in terms of communication? So like if we take the high level abuse stuff and go to like what do the general public generally, you know, I think this lack of respect, you know, like we ambush our partners with every thought and because you're my partner, I'm going to text you every thought and feeling that I have as mm. I have it. And when you come home from work, I'm going to pounce on you. It's like, that's not respectful. Like I wouldn't want someone to do that to me. So let's start with how do we create just some basic respect conversationally? But we're not talking, I mean, if, unless you grew up in a family that did that, I didn't, you don't know that it's actually better to say, like, my husband, I put meeting invites on his calendar when we have to talk about something. Just because, like, that's extreme, but he's a business guy. That's his language. That makes sense to him. So it's not, oh, my God, when he comes home from work, what's he going to come home to? You know, if I'm mad, I'll take care of myself. I'm not going to be a storm cloud running around. But create some structure. If we approached our relationships with the same sort of, like, we understand. And at work, certain things are expected. You don't get to go off on a coworker. So, like, let's treat our partner with the same ground rules that we would treat someone at work. I think that would solve a lot of the problems. Another thing I'm picking up on too is that an issue I common I commonly see is a need to be fixed. Like going yeah. to mom, you're going to daddy, kind of like what, you, what you're avoiding. I think what I picked up there is that if you're angry, you're taking it as your responsibility to heal it. Yeah. That was one of the biggest things in, in my relationship success was that key point being like, yeah. oh shit, it's not actually on my partner to regulate me. Like it's, it's an impossible thing to do. Like no one can actually do that for me. They can be safe. It's still on me to regulate myself. Yeah. How, how common is that? What's the effect of kind of, okay, this is a common pattern I see, right? Trigger, a partner triggered us. It's now on you to make me feel better. Yeah. How common is that? And what's the issue with that? I think that's the weaponization of all this healing language. It's like, especially for people that know a little bit about somatics, it's like, you're my partner. You triggered me. Now I need you to co-regulate me. So I'm just going to sit here and princess out and you're going to, it's like, if the person that triggered you is your partner, then it's on you to find another way to get into regulation so that you can repair the relationship. But our partners are you know, it's not like, oh, it's your job to regulate yourself. So I'm not going to be here at all. It's like, but no, if we treat each other like we're all functional, capable adults, then I shouldn't need you to take care of me. I can go take care of myself. Yes, co-regulation is important, but not at the expense of everyone's like adulthood autonomy, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Makes sense. I think another part of your book that resonated with me was your focus on friendships too. I think that's often forgotten. Is, yeah. is how to cultivate good friendships. Yeah. So what are the, some of the pitfalls you see in people and their friendship relationships and how does it have some of the same traumatic issues as relationships? Yeah, and I think like one of the biggest red flags in the dating world is dating someone who doesn't have friends because I think a large part of the population thinks all of the things I need should be found in my intimate relationship, like my need for connection and community and closeness and my spiritual, you know, enlightenment and my physical needs. It's like, you can't get everything from one person. Like, that's just not a reasonable ask. So I think recognizing that we need them 
Like friendships are not optional. Like they're as important. Like it's more dangerous to your health to not have friends than it is to smoke. And there's research that backs that up. So then it's, all right, well, can we treat our friendship searches just like we treat, you know, if you're spending hours and hours on dating apps trying to find your partner, it's like, well, how much energy are you investing into building friendships so that once you get into that intimate relationship and your brain goes totally offline with lots of awesome hormones, you need friends to help keep you in check. Like friends are great co-regulators. That's a good point because I think a trap I've been in and many others do as well is that they think that a good relationship will solve everything, right? But in my experience, the best way to go about finding a relationship is first focus on, on making friends. Yeah building a good business for yourself, all the stuff that humans need to succeed. And then on the way, hopefully a relationship kind of, kind of comes. How is that a way you recommend to look for a relationship? If you're single and needing someone, what should you do? Yeah. And the whole, like, you have to love yourself before you can love is that's bullshit. That's not true, but that doesn't mean that you need an intimate partner. Like relationships are tough. They can be. So we need to build a life that will support us for when the relationship gets tough, you know? So if you're single and you're like, what do I do first? First friends, like first the bottom layer of all of this is friendships that can then support your business goals, friendships that can then support when the relationship gets hard. But we, we weren't taught to value it, so we don't do it. You know, I think people think friendships are sort of like, whatever, they're my friends. But, and I'm also talking about healthy friendships, not they've been in my life for 20 years, therefore they're my friend. It's like, yeah, but like, do they bring you closer to your authentic self or do they take you out? That's your mark- marker for a healthy friendship? Yeah. That's the one we should all use? Not we all. I think not everyone wants their friends to be catalysts for authenticity. Like I have some friends that I just like them because they know how to do cool things. Like, so like the friendship doesn't need to be deep, deep soul level. It's like, they're really awesome hiking friends. Like, great. And so knowing what type of friendships that you need is how you decide whether or not they're healthy. Like I need deep, deep soul level friends, but I also need, let's just go do stuff and not get into the whole healing spiritual realm. And so that's what I need, but I don't know what you need. Yeah, I agree on the same way, but why, why do you think that is? Because it's such an unusual way of uh, articulating friendship. I think it's necessary in my experience too. I'm the same way. Yeah. Why is that for you? Why do you think that you as well as many others need that range of friendship of the ones who are deep and also the ones you can go play a sport with or yeah. go to the movies with? Why is that the case? Yeah. And I think to a degree, everyone could benefit from that sort of mix of people because then you're not putting the entire load of the relationship on one person. It's the same thing with your intimate relationships. If you're my best friend and we do everything together and I tell you everything, then when you don't answer my text because you're living your life, I'm going to get resentful and pissed off. It's like, I needed you. Why weren't you there? That's not a healthy ask of a friend. It's like, we want to spread it all out so that everyone has like mobility and freedom and choice. Yeah, I agree. You know, like my friends are, I have my, if I needed them at 3 a.m., I could call them. But I also know I'm going to try really hard not to do that because trauma dumping on our friends is not a kind thing to do. Like I, if I need it, I'll ask for it. But it's not a kind thing to just constantly be vomiting onto each other. Um, it's also not helpful. What's a healthy way of having or using, I'm trying to think of a better word than using. What's a health, I'll use it for now. What's a healthy way of using friends to sure. help you feel better? Is there a way to do it's correct? Yeah, you, well, there's healthier ways than others. What's a, okay, let's say you have an issue. Let's say you're, yeah. you and your partner have a fight. Yeah. 
and you're confused and lost. What's the best way of explaining that to your friends in a healthy way? Same thing with conversational boundaries. I have, like, I can think of the first person I would call in that situation. I would text her and say, Hey, I have a thing going on with my partner that I would love to process with you. If you're available, great. If not, it's fine. No worries. But if you can jump on a call, I would appreciate it. And my inner circle, we all do this. And it's such a respectful, kind way. Like I will always pick up the phone when that's how the ask is presented. I will very rarely pick up the phone if it's, Britt, I need you. It's like, mm, no. Which is most people. Which is most people. There's call and, and trauma dump, as you said. Yeah. 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 So ask, this is my thing. This is what I'm needing. I don't need it to come from you. I'd like it to come from you, but if you're not available, like I'm not going to die. And then the friend then feels free to, if they can, they show up. If they're not able, they know I'm okay. And if they're not available, I have other people to do the that. The thing with. I'm picking up on your perspective is this common framework of respect. Yeah. And a kind of a dissolving of your own narcissism. Because yeah. so I think we're also <laughs> self-absorbed that we all think that like, oh, you know, it's my world. I can just call someone off the blue yeah. in the middle of the day and expect, not only expect, but demand them to help me. Yeah. But was it always the case for you? Did you have to build that kind of respect? Because for me, it was I was opposite. I was just like calling people and disrespectful and narcissistic. Oh, yeah. So oh, I was terrible. Behavior. Okay. My like narcissistic shadow parts. I, I I'm like no, not me. I'm a I'm not a nice person, but like I don't have that type of manipulative me 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 energy. It's like yeah, I do. So do you. We all have it. Um, I had to confront that in myself first. I was super super toxic about it. And then I learned it actually works better to do this. And, you know, this is the framework for how to be respectful to another human. I don't need you. I would like you. Are you available? If yay, cool. If not, no problem. That works. So this was very much trial and error. I did not, I didn't have friends growing up. College, it was tricky and difficult. And then onward, it was just a mess. So this has been just in the last 10 years that I've learned how to do this. Well, yeah, that's a. How old are you now? 43. 43, okay. That's what, um, I'm trying to say, say this, you know, not make you feel disrespect, disrespected, but it's like, um, there's, it's never too late to do, to, no. to do the work, right? Because you get to a point where it's, I meet people who are 40 or 35 and their excuse is, I'm just the way I am. Yeah. Right. Which is not accurate. It's just like, this is like whatever. Family members are like, why don't you do this? You know, at this point, it just is the way it is. Yeah. It's like, no, we're going to have, you know, midlife crisis in 10 years and yeah. have to deal with this stuff. So true. How did you avoid that? Well, I, I have How clients do you avoid that? Just do up. How do you avoid that pitfall with clients too? Like, how do you avoid yeah. that thing of people being like? Because I think self acceptance is a necessary way of being, right? But at one point, are you allowing yourself to be a, a lesser version of yourself? <laughs> So self-acceptance should always come with also the desire. It's a paradox, right? It's like, I love and accept myself right where I'm at. And because of that, I am not content to stay here doing these things that I'm doing. And it's being able to hold the duality of, I love myself here and I'm not willing to stay here. And that's where the change window tends to open. And it's not an age thing. It's like, I have clients in their seventies who are like, how do I have a boundary with my kid? And it's so beautiful when I see that. It's very yeah. healing to me to be like, oh my gosh, like you're a great grandmother, you're a great grandmother, and you're wanting to learn how to do boundaries. Like, that's amazing. But for people who are like, this is just who I learned really quickly not to try to sell people on, I used to, but it's like the invitation is, is there and they'll either come up with you or not. And if not, you can expend so much valuable energy trying to change people who won't or explore what else might be possible. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your authenticity. Yeah. 
It's a, I think a lot of people who are in this work have this persona, this guru or the self-help person, but you're just radically who you are. And I want to give you kudos for the work you do. Because again, I've never met someone who's you know, a therapist in that space and also combining the parts work, the shadow work, all this stuff, the body work. So it was a very nice surprise looking to your work, reading your book and everyone read, read your book. Um, but thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. And where can people find you and get the book? Yeah. Thank you so much. I wrote the book I needed. I wish this book existed in one place when I was 20. It didn't, so I wrote it. Uh, find me on Instagram at Britt Frank or my website, scienceofstuck.com. Cool. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Of course. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast as well as rate and review. Thank you for listening.